need to be able to quickly confess and turn and ask the Holy Spirit to fill us so that we can walk in the Spirit. So our first section of this passage is what we're going to cover today. Victory has already been accomplished. The victory has been won. We just need to live in it, to walk in it. So um, if you don't mind, please let's just stand together in honoring of God's word, 19 through 25. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. They are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, or licentiousness, idolatry, witchcraft, or another word for it is sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I have told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, temperance, or self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since or if we live in the Spirit, let us also keep in step or walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, desiring vain things. Father God, help us today to be able to discern when our old man, our flesh, our unredeemed bodies is rearing its ugly head and that we can quickly mortify it and claim the victory that has already been won at the cross. You triumphed over our enemy. You nailed every sin. And we have been crucified with Christ. And so, Father, I pray that we will be able to identify quickly what it looks like and what it means to be in our flesh so that we can yield and submit and present ourselves to you to live in victory. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as believers, we need to live out the spiritual reality that is ours. Theologians will talk about positional sanctification and practical sanctification. That's an easy way to remember it because they both start with the word the letter P. But positional sanctification simply just means that when you believe in Jesus Christ, you have a new position before God. You've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and you have been translated into the kingdom of his dear son. So it's a new position. You've been transferred from light out of darkness, the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of Christ. But faith and maturity is a process. Sanctification grows. And so 
everything that is ours at salvation isn't always realized at salvation. When you trust in Jesus Christ at that very moment, and I want to just define for us what it means to trust and to believe in Jesus. It's not an intellectual acknowledgement that I know this is true. The demons do that and they tremble. So belief in the New Testament is a synonym for receiving or embracing. 1 John, I'm sorry, John 1, 11 and 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God. As many as believe into his name. So we have a synonym for the word to believe. It means to receive, it means to accept, it means to embrace. We have another synonym found in John chapter 2 and verse 22, where it says, When Jesus was at the feast of unleavened bread, many believed in him when they saw the miracles. But Jesus did not believe himself into them. Same Greek word. It's translated to entrust himself, to commit himself. So to believe means to embrace, to accept, and to take into your life all who Jesus is, believing into his name. It means to trust, it means to rely on. And then in John chapter 3 and verse 36, the Bible says this, For as many as believe him have everlasting life, but those who do not believe, the wrath of God abides on them. And it's a different word. Elizabeth and Brendan will know this word. It's the word pytho. And I tried to teach my kids in Greek class little tricks to memorize words. And so I said, just think about the, the python and Winnie the Pooh, you know. And how he, he tried to lure them in. He, this is silly. I don't know why I'm telling you all this. But anyway, the word to believe there is the word pytho, which means to trust, to rely on, to put your confidence in. So to believe in Jesus means that you are relying on him. You're putting your confidence in him. You're entrusting yourself to him. You are committing yourself to him. You are receiving all who he is into your heart. That's what it means to believe. And the moment you do that, you have been transferred. All of Christ's death is then accredited to you as a free gift. And what that means is, according to Romans 6, 6, knowing that our old man, that's our sin, that's our flesh, that's before we came to Jesus, our old man has been or was, it's an aorist tense, it's a completed act. Our old man was crucified, it's passive. I am nailed to the cross. I was crucified in the event of Jesus' crucifixion, when I believe in him, knowing that the old man was crucified, and here's the result, that the body of sin, that's what we live in, in our members, the body of sin might be, and many modern translations say, be done away with. The old King James says, might be destroyed. That's a strong word, destroyed. But the Greek word is katargeo, and the definition of that word means to render it idle, to make it inoperative, 
to cause a thing to have no further efficiency, to deprive it of its force and influence and power. So our old man isn't simply eradicated. I wish he was, but his force, his ability to live in your life has been neutralized. You don't have to serve sin any longer the moment that you come to Jesus Christ. You've been crucified. And then it goes on to say that we can walk in the newness of life. And then it says those who are died, sin no longer is their master. So as a result of your faith, trusting and believing, relying in Jesus Christ, one, your old man's dead, he's destroyed. Our new life is possible to walk in the newness of life and sin no longer has a right to rule and reign in your life. That's what happens at conversion. And even greater than this, yes, we are free from the law. I'm free from sin and death. But that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in your mortal body. Do you understand that this morning? The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that's the Holy Spirit, that's God Almighty, lives in you, and he will produce fruit. If you have the Spirit of Christ, you will have fruit. If you do not have fruit, you don't have the Spirit of Christ. It's that simple. We must recognize, then, what the flesh looks like. Paul tells us here that the flesh is evident. It's obvious when we are living in the flesh, and those who habitually live there don't need to delude themselves that they are really Christians because they're not. The Bible is very clear here in Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Galatians chapter 5, that those who practice these things, these manifestations of the flesh, and live in those kind of circumstances, they are not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's strong language. You don't hear it preached. You don't hear it taught very, very seldom. Um, and... I think it's because it's not popular. It doesn't build big churches. Because people want to come and feel like, yes, I'm a Christian and I can have the world too. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The flesh is well evident. It's, it's described in four, is that four? Yes, four <laughs> broad areas. One has to do with human sexuality. That's where the flesh is really going to show itself. A second broad area is in what we worship. What is it that is the Lord of your life? That will show you what the flesh really wants. Thirdly, it's our malevolent, I don't know, I can't say that word, <laughs> our, our unkind actions and thoughts in our relationships with other people. That's how the flesh shows itself. And that seems where Paul really hits in this passage. I mean, the sexual sins, they're very evident. They're very obvious. The things that we worship, those should be obvious too. But Paul really hits the way we treat other people as a outproduct, an out, a byproduct of, of our sin that lives in us, our human nature that, that, that is unredeemed. That's how sin really shows itself. And so Paul really hits that one. And then the fourth one, again, is very obvious. It should be obvious. 
and that is the excessive use of alcohol or any substance that causes us to lose our lucid minds is a way that our flesh operates and shows itself. So let's just go through these this morning and name them and give the definition. So there's no fogginess today. When you leave this church, you can say, you know what? That is a work of my flesh, and I don't want it in my life, and I'm going to crucify it. I'm going to put it to death. I'm going to mortify it. So the first one is this sexual deviation. So anything outside of God's design for the husband and wife is a work of the flesh. That's pretty broad, isn't it? But it tells us exactly what it is. Anything sexual outside of what God has designed between a husband and a wife is a deviation, and that is a product of our flesh that needs to be put to death. Fornication is a broad word. It's the Greek word pornea, where we get the word pornographic. So fornication is more of a broad word. It is a wide sense of any sexual irregularities, anything outside of that. Homosexuality, lesbianism, uh, what we watch on television, the books that we look at, the pictures that we dwell on, the vocabulary out of our mouth, the jokes that we tell. That's all under this one umbrella, pornea. So that's the definition of this word. It encompasses anything that you look at, think about, talk about. It's God's standard for sex was, is within the, a commitment That's God's design for sex. It's within the design of commitment, not self-gratification. And pornea has the idea of self-gratifying without the responsibility of making a commitment to that other person. The next word is uncleanness. Sexual impurity with regards to your motives is the idea of that word. The last word for this is, is, is lewdness or lasciviousness. And the Greek lexicon describes it as wantonness or just throwing off restraint. Now, what I did this week, it, it, this teaching is pretty simple, but it took me a long time because I took every single word. I consulted Thayer's Greek lexicon, Vincent's or Vine's expository words, Um, A.T. Robertson's Word Studies, and a Greek scholar named Kenneth Kenneth Wiest, who was many years at Moody Bible Institute. And so I just took all these words, and I tried to boil them down to a concise definition. So it took me a lot of time, but I, I wanted to help us this morning as a church to be able to identify them. So that's the area of, of just mar- marital deviation. The next one is theological or religious worship. And he gives two words idolatry, and the Greek word is actually idolatry, and the other word is pharmakia. Where we get the word pharmacy from, and that tells us a lot about what this worship, this false religious thing that God is talking about in this passage. So idolatry, I had to, to consult not so much the lexicons for this one, but other biblical passages. Idolatry is not just simply the worship of a false god. I mean, that, that's, we all understand that. But the Bible is clear in two passages, in Ephesians chapter 5 and in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, we are commanded, it's an imperative command, to mortify. 
that is put to death the deeds of our members. So it's a willful decision that I consciously slay idolatry. And he uses a word for idolatry. He says covetousness, which is idolatry. And so the definition would mean then anything that supersedes your love for Jesus Christ. Anything, any person, is called idolatry. Then the word sorcery, it's the, or witchcraft, it's, like I said, it's the Greek, Greek word pharmakia, but it's seeking some kind of experience where your mind is altered by some substance. And you think about this. How does the devil work? The devil wants you to have your senses dulled so that he can feed into you his thoughts. And that's why the word pharmakia was used for witchcraft and sorcery. We need to worship our God with our heart, with our soul, and with our mind. And it doesn't need to be diluted with anything. It could include movies that glorify demonic experiences, or books or movies that glorify the use of enchantments and magic. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 19 and verse 18, it says, those who received Jesus Christ came and they confessed their deeds. And it says they brought their books that contained magic, sorcery, witchcraft. And Josiah knows this one. I'll put him on the spot here. Kinsey, how much worth was all those books? I heard it. You're right. Exactly right. 50,000 pieces of silver. A piece of silver, one piece of silver was a day's wage. That is a lot of money, and that's a lot of witchcraft going on in the city of Ephesus. But they got rid of it. They burned it. They said, this is a work of the flesh, and we don't want it in our lives. We've come to Christ. Now the one that Paul really hits hard, unkindness in our relationships. The definition of this work is a desire to harm, to covet, or to subvert someone else's joy. You just don't like it. When somebody else is successful, you want to do them harm or you covet or you want to somehow subversively detract from what they are doing. And the first word that Paul uses here is the word hatred. The root of this Greek word is the same word for enemy. It is a work of our flesh that has a hostile thought toward those who harm or stand in the way of our ambitions. If somebody gets in the way of what you want to do or your goals for your success, there's this feeling of disgust or dislike for that individual. As I was reading it this week, I couldn't help but think of so many politicians that I feel disgust for because they have really put a crimp in my style. Our entire vacations this summer are going to be rearranged because we can't afford to put 
a gallon in our gas tanks. But I don't need to have hatred for those people. That is a work of my flesh. I am to pray for those people who curse me. I am to bless those who despitefully use me. I am to be praying for them, according to Jesus' teaching, for those who are my enemies. That's what Jesus Christ did on the cross, didn't he? He said, Father, forgive them. The next word that Paul uses is the word contention. It's the word strife or quarrelsome attitude. One who does not seek peace, but has an argumentative spirit. This is particularly destructive in any relationship. When you pick and you look for ways to stir up strife. The church at Corinth was plagued with this fleshly sin. 1 Corinthians 1.11, Paul uses the same Greek word and says, I have heard that there are dissensions, strife, quarreling, bickering among you. Titus uses the exact same Greek word in, in Titus 3.9. He says, avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions. Avoid quarrelsome arguments. And this is why. Because they are unprofitable and they are worthless. That's what quarreling does. They, they're, they're worthless. The next word that Paul uses is the word jealousy. It's the Greek word zealous. And we all know what our English word from that is. It's to be zealous. Now, there's good zealous things and there are negative zealous things. And this is the negative idea of zealous. Because you can have an ardent fever and passion for the right things, but in this context, it's obviously an ardent, fervent passion for what somebody else has that you want to take. That's the idea of this word. It means to have a passion for position and recognition. It's the feeling of envious and contentious as a rival towards someone else who gets what you wanted. A good illustration for that is the illustration of the man who worked in the vineyard. And when the guy who only worked an hour, he was jealous, he didn't want that man's success, he didn't want him to have what he wanted, and he said, you're evil because I worked all day long. He was envious. The next word that Paul uses is a word that's described as outbursts of wrath. The Greek word is thermos. <laughs> and we understand what that means, don't we? Put something in a thermos to keep it hot. A thermostat measures the heat. But this Greek word means to come to a boiling point quickly. Boy, this is convicting, I hope. I know I was talking to a sister in Christ and she was going through this list, and she came across that, and she called her pastor and says, this is a problem with mine. And she says, Pastor, am I saved? And he says, you're going to have to figure that one out. If it is a habitual practice in your life that you've got a short fuse, that, boy, you're ready to go off in a second, it may be an indicator that you have never come to know Jesus Christ. 
if you feel jealousy in your heart, if you feel contentions, if you're a quarrelsome person always looking for arguments, if you feel hatred continuously for other people, for what they have, these are all indicators that we've never come to know Christ as our Savior. So thermos, the idea is heat. It is in the plural in the Greek signifying this is an out-of-control temper that happens repeatedly. One who does not listen to the voice of reason. You can't even argue with this person because you can't even get a word edgewise because they're so boiling over at you. They refuse to listen and they rush hastily to make a decision. That's what it means to be thermos, to be outbursts of, of wrath. They won't hear a matter. The next word is translated selfish, ambition. The Greek root word means one who works for pay. Selfish ambition. One who works for pay. That's the idea of this root word, one who works for pay. So in other words, he's always looking for what he can get out of it. He's not serving simply because he wants to serve. He or she has an ulterior motive Looking, how am I going to get a kickback? How am I going to get paid back for what I'm doing? That is a work of the flesh. If you don't do it out of love, don't do it at all. My wife used to tell our kids when they were helping around the house, they didn't want to. She'd say, you're losing your rewards up in heaven. You remember that, Kelly? <laughs> They'd be downstairs folding all the clothes. I don't want to do this. What do I get out of this? What's in it for me? Well, there ain't nothing in it for you now. You just lost your reward. <laughs> Selfish ambition. What? Tanya, you got some kids like that? <laughs> we, we all are like that, aren't we? We all are, if we're honest, at times. Hopefully not habitually, because we are. We're in danger spiritually. But that's what it means to have selfish ambition. James gives a warning about this in James 3.15. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. That kind of wisdom doesn't come from above. It is sensual. It is earthly. It is demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every evil practice. That's what happens, happens with selfish ambition. The next word is dissensions. It's a compound word in the Greek. It's pronounced diox which means to divide into, dia. And then the rest of that word is pronounced stasia, which means to stand by. So literally, this word means to divide into two standings, to be divisive, to have two groups. And so the idea of this word, when it's used in our flesh, it means somebody who has a divisive spirit one who seeks to divide rather than bring unity, a person who will pit individuals or groups against each other through the means of gossip. That's powerful. When you start talking about another person or another group of people and you're doing it behind their back, you are being dissentious. You're trying to divide people. And this is a work of the flesh. The next word, the Old King James, the New King James uses the word heresy. Heresy is literally the Greek word. It's, it's heresy. That's, that's how it's pronounced in Greek. 
But this Greek word actually goes deeper than just heretical teaching. It's not just false doctrine. Now, that is part of it. In fact, it's defined that in Romans chapter 16 and verse 7. You can jot that reference down and look at it there of those who cause dissensions, contrary to the doctrine that you've received. We are commanded to avoid those people. Heresies, we don't deal with divisive people by trying to chum up with them. Titus says this, after the first and second admonition, a heretic, the New King James says, a divisive person, reject, knowing that he's subversive, he is warped, and there's nothing that you can do to help that person. He'll only divide being self-condemned. This is the work of the flesh that's manifest in having a party spirit by the formation of cliques. The next word is the word envy. This is the fleshly attitude that begrudges and cannot contemplate someone else's prosperity without feeling slighted themselves. When you don't enjoy somebody else's success and you feel like somehow you didn't get what was coming to you, that is a sign of envy. It's illustrated again in that parable of the vineyard worker. The last word for these malignant, malevolent, unkind feelings that are part of our flesh is the word murder. And that's simply hatred in your heart. None of us are probably going to go out and kill anybody, but when we feel hatred towards somebody, we have already committed murder in our heart, according to the Sermon on the Mount. The last broad area is the excessive use of alcohol. The word drunkenness. It's defined as this, indulging in excessive drinking of alcoholic beverages. But here's the warning. In 1 Corinthians 5.11 and 1 Corinthians 6.10, the word drunkenness is right beside another Greek word pronounced loitering. And we know what it means to loiter. It means just to hang out and you've got nothing to do. And so you start talking like you shouldn't talk, and you start doing things that you shouldn't be doing when you're loitering. My mama used to tell me this, and my grandmother used to tell me this, that idleness or loitering is the devil's workshop. It really is. And so Paul puts drunkenness and loitering right side by side, and this is what he's trying to say. And Greek commentators will agree with what I'm saying. This isn't something I made up. But drunkenness is listed close to these things because it implies it weakens people's rationale and moral control over your words and actions. That's what alcohol does. Secondly, this word is used in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 through 8 because it weakens a person's resolve for spiritual preparedness. You add alcohol to a situation and you are no longer spiritually alert and keen at necessary times of spiritual crises in your life, you will make the wrong decision. Now, this took a lot of research this week, and so I hope you appreciate it. You might not appreciate it, but nevertheless, I'm going to share it with you. The notion that the wine in the Bible is like our wine that we have today is completely unfounded. The Hebrew word for strong drink, strong drink, mind you, is the Hebrew word shaker, the word shaker um, 
stood for strong drink, and in almost every passage that I looked up, with the exception of one passage, it was condemned in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not a big fan of the NIV, but in Isaiah 24.9, and you can check me on this, the NIV translates the word shaker or strong drink for the word beer. That, that, that tells you something, doesn't it? Now, the wine that is served today that we have in our stores, according to the Hebrew Encyclopedia of, of alcoholic drinks, is stronger or as strong as what was used in pagan festivals. Norman Geisler um, is a contributor to the Holman Study Bible and its footnotes. And he's got an entire page in that Bible talking about this. He was also the head of research at, and biblical studies at Liberty University. And this is what he says, and I quote, The ancients in biblical time did not have the capacity to produce wine with a high level of alcoholic contact because the distilling process had not been discovered until the ninth century. Only since medieval times has it been able to produce this. Strong drink of the Bible was most likely equal to our present-day beer. Norman Geisler goes on to say the word yayin, another Hebrew word for wine. There's three, actually. Another one was tirosh. Tirosh always meant that which was freshly squeezed out and had no alcohol whatsoever. But the word yayin, which is also translated wine, was always diluted with water. It was mixed with water, and it had the potential to ferment within time. But it must be used in the context. So that's the word drunkenness. And then the next word is revelry, and the Greek word is kamas. And you can look this guy up, because kamas was known as a Greek god. So kamas was the Greek god of revelry. He encouraged insobriety, moral slackness. And in Romans 13, 13, Paul contrasts revelry with walking properly as in the day. The implication is that our alertness to truth and the ability to expose corruption is dissuaded by the use and the abuse of alcohol. Those who are involved in Kamas often caroused at night in biblical times, Hence, Paul's injunction that we should cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, that was quite an extensive list that Paul wrote for us. And you may be thinking, wow, I can see a lot of that in my life. I can get envious. I can get jealous. I have outbursts of wrath. I have selfish ambition. I, I gossip and I, I can be divisive. And so what, what do we do with those behaviors, that list? And here's the good news this morning. The works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious to you and I, and we don't have to live in them. By no means is this meant to be an exhaustive list. These four broad areas of our life we can look at, is there sexuality that's tempting me? outside of the bonds of marriage, in my relationships with people, am I a contentious person? 
Am I an envious person? Am I quick to lose my temper? Those are things that you and I can look at and evaluate in our lives. Salvation, let me say this clearly, salvation has nothing to do with works. Absolutely nothing to do with works. But, listen to me clearly, there are three times where Paul gives similar lists, just like he does here in Galatians, and Paul makes it abundantly clear that if I practice these things, I will be excluded from the kingdom of heaven. The Bible makes no mistake about that. Ephesians 5, 7 says, Therefore do not be partakers with them, which suggests and teaches that, yes, as a believer, I can partake in those works of the flesh. doesn't mean you lose your salvation. It doesn't mean that you're not saved. Because every one of us, as long as we are in these members, Paul said it in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, the flesh is going to war against the Spirit, and I'm not going to be able to do the things that I wished. That works both ways. So when I'm in the flesh, I know I have the Holy Spirit within me, and I cannot habitually carry out any of those things that he listed because the Spirit of God dwells in us. First John tells us this, that we cannot continue to sin because his seed remains in us. Whatsoever is born of God does not habitually practice sin. So that's the good news. Those who practice, if we look at this in Galatians chapter 5, I want you just to look at me, look with me at the end of verse 20, 21, that those who practice, that's all one word in the Greek New Testament. It's a present active participle. A participle is a verb that is used as a noun to ascribe the character and the quality of an individual. So Paul is saying that those who do those things, no, that's not what he's saying. Those who habitually live, and this is their character, those who practice these things. New Testament scholars all agree, to practice means to habitually practice such things which indicates the true character of the individual. The Word of God bases its estimation of a person's character not upon his infrequent or out-of-ordinary actions, but upon their frequent ones. Their frequent behavior forms their indicated character, and such people will not inherit the kingdom of God in the future. Now, how does spiritual warfare work against my flesh? Let's just kind of walk through last week with three things. I walk in or by the means, the agency, under the guidance and influence of the Holy Spirit. That's a command, a present command, which means moment by moment. I yield myself to Christ, I present my members, and I am confessing sin. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit. Second, I recognize that my flesh is antithetical or contrary to the Holy Spirit's desires in my life. I've got to recognize it, that it doesn't want me to do what God wants me to do. My flesh doesn't. 
And I've got to recognize that. And I've got to understand that when I am walking in the Spirit under His power and under His control, I cannot, double negative, fulfill the desires that my flesh wants to carry out. Fourthly, or thirdly, flesh is not defeated by more laws. You don't give your flesh another law to have to obey, to have victory over it. Rather, it's through the submission and surrender of the cross. That's where the victory is won. I have been crucified with Christ. Those who are being led by the Spirit are not under law. The law has no power to have victory over sin. The Spirit alone does. The flesh is not defeated by submission to the law, but by surrender to the Spirit. So how can we apply this to today? One is I need to be identifying the temptations in my life. I need to be aware of where my weaknesses are. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us therefore put on the armor of light. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us this. Because a great cloud of witnesses has gone before us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, laying aside every weight and sin that so easily ensnares us, looking to Jesus. He is the author. He is the originator of our faith, and he is the completer and finisher of our faith, not you and I. So, as I identify, next I mortify. And then thirdly, I submit myself to the Holy Spirit and walk in step with what he has shown me. So the victory is already ours as Christians, as believers. The flesh has no power to dictate how you and I should live. Let's sort of summarize it, okay? We can identify them. We can clearly see what they are. The ones who habitually practice those things have never come to know Jesus Christ. And thirdly, our warfare against the flesh is won by the Spirit It's recognizing that when I'm in my flesh, the Holy Spirit is there convicting me. And when I'm in the Spirit, I will not fulfill the things of the flesh. And I submit myself not to more laws, more legalism, but I submit myself to the victory that that the cross is secured for you and I. So this morning, this is a good time really to take the Lord's Supper. Because it's a time for every one of us to examine our hearts and to confess it, and to forsake it. And to walk in forgiveness, to walk in His grace. Here's the temptation for every one of us. When you hear a sermon like this, or when you feel like you have failed miserably in your flesh, the temptation is just to go and just... God, just just beat me up. God, you won't even listen to my prayers. God, I'm not even worthy to be called your child. And those 
They're true. But the beautiful thing is that grace, it's, it's got to be grace, doesn't it, folks? There, there can't be any other way. So this morning, don't, don't wallow in your self-pity. Yes, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Mourn, weep, and lament. Let your laughter be turned into heaviness. And humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And the next part of James says this, and he will lift you up. If you stay down there in the gutter, you're not believing God to lift you up. So this morning, as we take this Lord's Supper, every one of us who knows Jesus Christ can take it with a pure heart because you've already been forgiven. You're already crucified with Christ. You can walk in the newness of life, and sin is not your master. Jesus is. Father, thank you this morning that Jesus Christ entered into a new covenant. And that part of that new covenant is that the Holy Spirit fills us and writes your laws on our hearts. God, if your laws are not written within us, then we don't know you. So this morning, I pray that, God, if there's anyone here who says, you know what? Those characteristics of, uh, that, that we just went, went over, some of those things, I, I really habitually live that way. And maybe this morning, all it takes is a simple cry from the heart. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I want Jesus to come and to cleanse me and to forgive me. I repent. I do this morning acknowledge that, yes, I need a Savior and I cannot save myself. And I want to follow Christ. I want to trust Him. I want to commit my life. I want to surrender to Him as my Lord. God, that's all we have to do today. And God, if we're believers here this morning, we've had a rough week. We haven't been in the Bible this week. We haven't been in prayer this week. We haven't been in fellowship with you this week. And we've had some outbursts of anger. We've had some jealousy. There's been division. There's been quarrels. All those things that we listed. God, today, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and we make him a liar. So God, I pray that before we take the Lord's Supper, that we will do business with you this morning. And God, that we will walk out the doors this morning in victory. And God, that victory will be ours this week because we will identify the flesh. And we will resist it and we will mortify it and we will walk in the Spirit this week. God, I pray that we will be like that church in Ephesus who forsook its sin and burned its books so the Word of God prevailed and grew mightily. God, the power of our church is imperative with the purity of our church. So God, wash us today, cleanse us, make us your bride that is without spot and without wrinkle. We pray in Jesus' name.